Hey everybody, this is episode 42 of Artist Soapbox. Hello and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. Today I'm speaking with Alyssa Noble, Justin Turnow, and Lightsey Darst, the three organizers of DIDA, which stands for Durham Independent Dance Artists. DIDA was founded in 2014 by Nicola Bullock, Lightsey Darst, Justin Turnow, and Leah Wilkes. So, a couple of things. This is the first time I tried to accommodate so many interviewees at once in my home studio, so you'll hear some differences in the audio quality based on who was closest to the mic. However, I don't think that will distract you from the quality of this conversation, which was so rich and inspiring that I'm already scheming about ways to get Dida back on the podcast. We talk about self-producing, funding challenges, the Dida model, arts criticism and feedback, how to serve the community of artists and audience, and more. As far as topics I'm passionate about, this conversation hits the bullseye for me. I hope you enjoy the episode. Dida raises the profile of independent dance in Durham by curating a season of dance performances by local choreographers. Dida connects audiences and artists, providing audiences with easy access to exciting local work and providing artists with increased visibility to local audiences. Justin Turnow is a North Carolina native currently located in Durham. She is the artistic director of company and a co-founder and organizer with Durham Independent Dance Artists. Lightsey Darst is a writer, worker, and parent. She is a co-founder of and organizer for Dida. Alyssa Noble is a modern dancer, choreographer, and community organizer from Chicago. Alyssa joined the Durham Independent Dance Artists team in May of 2016. I've included longer bios for each of these artists in the show notes, so take a look there for more information or see their website, diedaseason.com. Here we go. Hello. Thanks so much for being here, Lightsey, Alyssa, and Justin. Appreciate y'all taking the time. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Let's jump right in to the most obvious question. What does Dida do? So Dida, we have sort of a two-part model, a two-pronged model, if you will. Um, One is that we curate and market seasons of independent dance in Durham. And in doing so, hope to bolster our artists' ability to gain press coverage and also to connect them with audiences and to sort of build an audience um, base that we hope goes from show to show throughout the season. And then the other piece of what Dida does is artist advocacy, um, connecting artists with resources, helping artists professionalize, whether that means through sort of the resource piece of it or advocating for artists and like the fact that they should be paid or something like that with local businesses or organizations. So we tend to be like the mouthpiece of the Durham dance community. For better or for worse. Could you say a little bit more about what you mean when you say professionalization? Yeah, I think the professionalization piece, that that was important when we first got started in 2014. Uh, I had come here from Minneapolis where I had been a dance critic for a long time. And when I came to the Durham dance community, I realized it was extremely hard to actually write about dance in Durham because you didn't get anybody's press release until three weeks before the event. So you didn't have time to pitch it. And then the press releases, you know, they weren't that helpful actually in understanding the dance. And that was the piece that I saw that it was emblematic of uh, just the, the entire sort of professional spheres. Like you would show up at the venue and no one would tell you where to sit and things like that. So, you know, these are things that surround the actual art making so it's not the art making that we are, you know, professionalizing. It's the getting your press release out. It's the promotion. It's the the um, the production calendar. Doing this, you know, six months before your show. Doing this four months before your show. It's the front of the house when audiences show up and people direct them and tell them, you know, check in here and here's your program and here's where you can wait until the show starts or whatever. So it's all those pieces that that Dida 
has worked to um, elevate. So I remember when we first started and we were sitting around talking about the needs of the community at that time and professionalization came up in ways um, because we felt like artists maybe wanted more time to focus on the actual art making and not on the marketing or the packaging or searching for a videographer. And unless you knew everyone in town or you, or you had lived here for a long time or you had the right person who was willing to share that with you, it was hard to get, get that information. And so that was a, a another big piece of what we were doing was more just making it easy for people to get through that stuff or easier to get through that stuff so that they could spend the bulk of their time doing the work, which is what most of us want to do is not making our poster or trying to find out who does videography for dance. So that was like a large piece of the professionalization too, is that it also um, I remember Leah saying over and over again, like it's about reinventing the wheel every mm-hmm. time when you're producing work here and how can Dida take that load off of the dance community here? Everyone that's self-producing, how can we get rid of that for them? So, so does that mean that you have a body of resources that you give the people in your season access to? We do. We do. We have, um, we developed in the first season and then every, every season we go back through it, um, and, and do the legwork and make sure that people that come to town know, um, I just yesterday met a videographer and I was like, Ooh, you got to go in the resource packet, (laughs) you know? Um, so we sort of do that legwork throughout, uh, to make sure that we have something we can hand, um, the artists on the season that is relevant and up to date. I think perhaps we should go back in time a little bit more. You are coming up on your fifth year anniversary. Is yes. that right? Yeah. And Alyssa, you alluded to this a little bit um, w- when you were answering the first question, but why was Dida formed in the first place? How was it formed? Mm-hmm. It was some dance community gathering. And uh, we, we just started talking about like, what are the problems in the dance community and how can we solve them? And I had this, you know, like five minute toss off idea where I said, well, you could just gather a bunch of performances together and call them a season and you could market and promote them together. And that was, that, that ended up being just like, you know, half of the Dida idea. But after that, Leah picked it up and ran with it and she convened me, Justin and Nicola Bullock. And so the four of us had all of these meetings and we sat around for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Trying to figure out what did the dance community need and how could we deploy, uh, you know, best deploy our resources and make this happen. So that's what it came out of, this desire to do something to further dance here and, and uh, you know, kind of a relentless focus on how could we do the most with the least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and we continue that. Yes, yeah, we continue that's, that. That's so real. <laughs> And Alyssa, when did you come into the picture? Um, so I came on board with Dida in May of 2016, um, which was right after their second season. Nicola had uh, just sort of decided that she was going to be moving to Berlin to make work there. And Leah had just gotten accepted to the University of Illinois um, to the graduate program there in dance. So Dida was down two people and I came on board. Just in the nick of time. (laughs) I think there are a lot of misconceptions about how Dida functions. Could you add some clarity to how things work behind the scenes? Dida's funny, and we come up against this problem a lot because we are not a model that even we can find. We're not (laughs) Googleable, So we have a hard time... um, we have a hard time finding uh, similar organizations as us. Yeah, I think something we get a lot is um, people thinking we're a dance company. That, mm. that happens a lot. And so, you know, especially if it's someone from outside the dance community, I'm explaining what Dida is. And he's like, oh, when do I get to see your work? <laughs> uh, never. Because <laughs> I don't dance. Um, uh, so we're not a dance company. You know, the other thing we're not is we're not a collective. So it's not just, you know, all the members of Dida have work on the season and it's the same people every time. It's not that we have, we curate the season. And the reason we do that is to, to try to create excitement around it. Because if you're a collective, then the members are the season. And so there's not that sense of selection. And that sense of selection we think is key to getting press coverage, 
And it's also part of the audience excitement around mm-hmm. the season. Mm-hmm. I also want to add that well, I think another piece of the misconception around like being a collective is that our Dida artists are somehow like members of Dida. And I think it's important to make the distinction that Dida is the three of us do, having a lot of meetings at coffee shops or at wine West Box. End Wine Bar. <laughs> Shout out West End yeah. Wine Bar. Um, and and a sprawling Google Drive and a lot of emails. Um, but that the artists that are on our seasons, while we market them as part of the Dida season, they don't have any responsibilities in terms of um, – Besides producing their own work, which, which is significant, what we want them to right? Do. Exactly, yeah. But so they don't. Um, we don't give them tasks to do for us, and and yeah, it lets them focus on their own work, like Justin was saying. And also, we hope that by putting those artists on a Dida season, that we're helping them gain visibility, and that we're we're just helping to sort of boost them in, um, yeah, in sort of like a press or marketing kind of capacity. And helping audience find their way to some artists maybe that they wouldn't otherwise know. Because oftentimes I think people go to see people they know perform. And so the having a season of die to artists or of independent artists who are on our season, I should say, yeah, I think helps sort of forge a sense of connection. I think like the distinction is really important because we... Uh, we don't have any expectation of the artists other than that they're going to produce their art. And how does the money work? <laughs> <laughs> what money? What money? <laughs> well, we, we reach into our pockets and we hand them our card and then we make postcards. <laughs> do, I, but they don't, they don't pay. You they don't do. pay them. Um, we don't pay them. And they, no. do, they do have a very small buy-in at the beginning of the season. Right. That right. helps cover a little bit of the marketing expenses. It's a $25 buy-in. So. And this last yeah. season, yeah. Uh, we did get a grant from the Mary Duke bid also. We, we did. want to make sure that we give them credit. So that was the mm-hmm. way the money worked this last season. But right. normally it's just been donations. We don't interact with the big money piece, the producing. Uh, right. That can be quite expensive, uh, self-producing work. What, like <clears> four, <throat> four to 10000 Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think even more than that. I think depending on the scope of the work and how many people you're trying to pay kind of well, yeah, yeah, it can get it can get to be a large sum very quickly. Right. And the artists self-produce. So they fundraise for their for their work. They are the ones um, dealing with that money piece. I mean, we try to help with, uh, you know, advice, but. That's that's uh, on the artists, and that's something we, um, you know, that that's a big problem in the dance community. That, right. That is so expensive to make work. Yep. And there aren't really models for how artists can afford that. Right. So I know that you have been contacted by some of the larger institutions in the area, Carolina Performing Arts, Duke Performances, for information about your views because you are advocates for the artists in the community. And you've been asked, you know, what do you see as the needs of this dance community? It sounds like funding is a huge need. Is that, is that what you find as well? I think us and all those organizations would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah the funding piece, I, it's, it's so hard. I think people don't realize how poor dance is and how expensive dance is. Mm-hmm. They, it's both things. Yeah. 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 They think that you know, audience members think that when they buy their ticket, they are funding the dance. And it's it's not the case. Nope. Yeah. I'm so adamantly shaking my head. <laughs> I've just so recently gone through that ringer. Yeah. 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 And I think that that sort of even moves beyond producing. Like the sheer cost of a dance space mm-hmm. and what it costs to run a dance space, even on an hourly basis is so high that it's inaccessible to the people who act, who it's actually built for. Yeah. And so in many cases, um, studios or mixed use spaces that have sprung floors, which are so, um, imperative to us and so expensive, um, to pay for the cost of operating that space, they rent out to organizations that have money which means that dancers get pushed out of spaces that are dance spaces or that are meant to be dance spaces. So even outside of producing the sheer cost of 
rehearsal or trying to find space to rehearse, but we don't have that money. We don't have the money we need to pay uh, to support the spaces we need to make work in. Could you give me a range of how much it might cost to rehearse in a studio? Yeah. Per hour. Sure. Um, Hourly. Depends um, on who you know, though. It depends on who you know. It depends on if you teach at Mm -hmm. a studio. Mm -hmm. In any space, uh, it depends on when that space is in use by the business. Which is usually in the evenings. Yeah. Yeah. To be a little more doable. But I mean, the range is what between like 15, 20 to 40 an hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you have access to it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, who's got that money? I don't know. This is a this is a, a very similar problem that we have in the theater mm-hmm. community, and then you end up making work in spaces that sometimes aren't uh, friendly to the artists or to the audiences you want to mm-hmm. attend the right. performances. It's a it's a chronic problem, and what I'm wondering is, so we're we're Durham. It's a relatively small community. Right. Have you seen other places? with other models, like what would you, if you could sort of wave a magic wand, do you have ideas for how funding might work better in our community for dance? I, so, I mean, the, the community I'm most familiar with other than this is, is uh, Minneapolis, which has a great dance community. I have to say they have a ton of funding. There just is a culture of arts philanthropy in Minnesota and in Minneapolis in particular, there are you know, three foundations I can think of in Minnesota no, four, that fund the arts heavily. There's also a state sales tax portion of the sales tax that actually goes to fund art. Yep. That's incredible. In yep. Yeah. And I mean, that's how they do it. It's not like the artists have figured out some magic budgetary loophole, like, oh, oh yay. Something like a Kickstarter. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> now I can make my work for right. $5. No, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's funding. It's philanthropy. So, yeah, I really don't know. It's hard. Yeah. I think there's some, uh, when I was working in New York, I could afford studio space, um, through subsidies. And so I think that's, that's brewing here, which is exciting. Um, but, but it does take grants, right. To be able to provide subsidies to artists in spaces. So who was subsidizing you? I was at Mark Morris dance center. That's where I was rehearsing most of the time for $10 an hour in these ridiculously gorgeous spaces, 10 minute Mm. walk from my house, maybe 15. Um, yeah, it was pretty incredible. Yeah. But you had to be the way that that program worked. You had to be, um, making work towards something. So you had to sort of prove that you were in a festival or Mm -hmm. a concert or something. Um, but that's not hard to do because there are a million festivals you can be in, in New York city. (laughs) So you could always be making a solo for something. What about commissions? Is that a possibility in this area? It's a little one-off. Yeah. I think people get them sometimes. Yeah. I mean, that, that also takes money. I think. (laughs) Well, usually what you get back is not what it costs for you to make the thing. So, Mm -hmm. you know, commissions aren't usually like. It ends up being more like a, a subsidy. Yeah. But even that would help. I mean, even that would help. And that's, that's not here yet. Yeah, I think it's so rare that anyone has funding before they make a performance. And then it just feeds into all these challenges of how do you pay for all the things on the way to the performance (laughs) before you do your Kickstarter a month before your show. Or It also affects the kind of work that gets made. Yeah, absolutely. if If you can't pay your dancers to be in rehearsal with you, are you really going to be developing a movement vocabulary that's specific to this work? It's, right. it's pretty hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a challenge. And I think about that curatorially also just in um, thinking about work that I see being made in North Carolina versus work that I see being presented that comes from mm-hmm. New York or um, other parts of the U S or even internationally. And one of the things that I notice is just like a, um, movement vocabulary sort of density that I see in other work that really, I think just speaks to having the resources and the space and the mm-hmm. time right. to really investigate something. To actually research. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's key. <clears throat> yeah. And I think in the same way that um, if you made a dance in your kitchen and performed <laughs> it somewhere else, 
it would be spatially very small because you made it in your kitchen. (laughs) I see that being the same as like, oh, I made this dance in a space where I had 30 hours of rehearsal time before performance versus, you know, some, some number much larger than that. Yeah. You can dancers that are paid. Totally committed to your work. Yeah. You see that all of that comes out in the final product Mm -hmm. of the dance. Yeah. I have a painter friend who told me that, um, I didn't know this before that different colors cost different amounts. Mm -hmm. Some colors are more expensive than others. So you can actually tell by looking at a painting, whether the, the painter has the resources to buy you know, full spectrum of colors. Oh, wow. And I think we, we kind of see the same thing in the dance community. Well, I think it circles back to this idea of professionalization. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we want to be operating. We have the capacity mm-hmm. from a creative standpoint and a skill standpoint to be, and I'm doing air quotes here, professional. Mm-hmm. But the lack of resources has a very marked impact on what comes out for the audience. And I see this in theater all the time when you're building the risers and you're hanging the lights and you're hanging the curtains and you're cleaning the bathrooms and you're, you know, you're doing all of that in a space you've never rehearsed in. And then you're going to perform in another place the following weekend, which is completely different. It's, it has an impact on the performance and the quality because there's so much distraction that is happening as you're trying to produce the work that it's really hard to build it. It's really hard to rehearse it. And it's really hard to take risks that require the kinds of concentration and connection that, that you want to put into something that you believe so much in. So this, this lack of funding is a pain But the pain is not just that that we're all broke and we're self-producing. I think the pain is that we can't make the art we want to make. Well, it creates a plateau. Yes, exactly. Yes, a plateau. Yes. No more plateaus. Um, So this is all a little bit of of a sad (laughs) part of the conversation. That's okay. It has to be had. We're all talking about it. Let's like, thank you for doing a podcast on it. Yes. I think it's really really important to talk about in in my – in my wildest dreams, someone would come up with a solution. And what I like so much about Dida is that it, you came up with something that's out of the box. It's an out of the box way of approaching a problem that you all identified. And it has, it seems to have made an impact. Have you heard that it has from the, from the dancers or from the audience? We see it. Yeah. It's, It's totally observable. Yeah. The impact. You know, I I compiled statistics for our last season and Dida alone, so Dida artists alone put on 33 nights of dance. And that volume, and that's just Dida. There there were more performances beyond that. That volume did not exist four years ago. It wasn't here. So yeah, I think. And there was a large number of sold out shows. Right. Most of those shows on on the Dida season get sold out at least a couple of nights of their run. It was almost Um, half. Almost half the the shows on the season. Yeah. So it shows that audiences are coming. Audiences are interested. Artists are making the work. More artists are making full length work. That was something we really pushed for in the first year was inviting people who we'd seen had not yet made a full length work to do that, to go ahead and get it under their belt. We were sort of like, here, we can give you the resources to take, you know, some of this stuff off your plate, make the thing, make the big thing, because it's a, it's a leveling up in that way. And then once you get good videography for it, then you can apply for grants, you can apply for commissions. You've got to get that, you got to get that thing under your belt. Sorry. Well, we have have another problem to talk about. Excellent. (laughs) If you want to talk about another problem. Yeah. So there's the funding problem. Yeah. And I think you were just talking about like innovation and Durham. And I do feel optimistic about the funding problem because if anybody can get a handle on a funding problem, I think we can. Not Dida, Durham. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but but another problem that, that we feel like needs addressing is critical conversation. Just feeling yes. the need for more, you know, it's more it's more written criticism, but it's also more things like this, more more places where there's more conversation around art and art issues. It's something new in the arena of the audience talkback. You know, how do we get audiences more confident talking about what they're seeing? Mm-hmm. How do we carry that conversation on beyond the show itself? That's a problem that we're we're kind of looking at. You have talkbacks. 
we yes. people used to. So this last season, we had a series of events called Die to Book Club, which was meant to be in the model of a book club where everyone does a thing together. So in this instance, sees a performance. And then we would have them every Wednesday night following the end of a like the end of the run of a performance in the hopes that it would have the widest possible audience reach. And we had different moderators for each one and said that the artist wouldn't be present. And the goal there was was to facilitate discussion that wasn't validation seeking in the way that most uh, Q&As tend to be like, Mm -hmm. here's what I thought about it. Tell me if I'm right. So and unfortunately, we didn't find that that model had the audience engagement that we had hoped. Um, And that's not to say that every conversation we had at Dida Book Club wasn't really great. Um, Whether it was about the work specifically, or whether it ended up being about like, the dance community or about the about the art community at large. I think every single one of those conversations led to something really great because also it was a commitment to the idea of critical conversation period. Mm-hmm. Like you didn't show up if you weren't game to discuss something in an in, I don't I don't want to say intellectual way, but, but in yeah, way. in a more critical way, in a way that that isn't surface level or um or I liked it or didn't like it, but to sort of really dig in and say, okay, like what was, what was in this? What did I get out of this? What did you get out of it? And Mm -hmm. to sort of have that conversation. And I think with dance, it's especially important because to me, modern dance has this level of inaccessibility because people think that if they don't find a narrative in it, that they don't get it or that it's not for them. And that's like the opposite of what we hope for in modern dance, which is just that someone will come and have an experience and anything you bring with you to that performance will inevitably shape the way that you receive it. It takes a lot of confidence. Right. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. People don't have the confidence. Mm -hmm. And how do we build that sense of like, Right. Security and having a conversation about dance. It's mm-hmm. sort of a catch 22. Yeah. It's like people. Yeah. People have a hard time with that. Well, and I think also in the past, I've seen things like like classes for audience. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the problem is that audiences need to be educated nope. about how to view dance. I don't Definitely think that's not. the thing. No. I think people just need to feel confident and validated Mm -hmm. that whatever experience they have, even if that experience is, wow, that movement was great. Like, (laughs) even if you had a super surface level experience with it, that's super valid. Mm -hmm. You know, like not every piece needs to be the piece that changes your life. And if if there's even one moment, I think, in a work that, that sticks with you or resonates in some capacity, then that's super important. And to me, what's exciting is like the opportunity to, to talk to someone else about the way that they experience that same moment or about maybe a different moment they experienced that you didn't experience in the same way. It didn't resonate with you somehow. Yeah. Conversations are super important to have and we need to find a way, you know, a platform to get them going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like I want other people to be as jazzed as I am about (laughs) like unpacking a dance show after I see it, you know? And I don't think that we're there yet. Which isn't to say that we couldn't get there, but something about the format of it isn't there yet. I'm really interested in learning as a community how to talk about the art that we see, because I feel like, and I've said this before on the podcast, I feel like a lot of times as an artist, I walk on the stage, I put my art out there, and then we all go home. Mm -hmm. It's like, here's my stuff, hope you like it, boom. Not acknowledging that there are people who have purchase tickets, have spent a couple of hours of their time with me when they could be doing something else, that they have opinions and and I want their feedback. And it's really it's really easy for me to make that a, a very one-way conversation. I mean, they're laughing and all of that 
hopefully, yeah. <laughs> but um, but it's it's not the dialogue that I am interested. In. And you know, even my mom, who has seen me in shows since I was like five years old, still doesn't feel comfortable giving her opinion yes. on what she's seen because she isn't a quote theater person. Mm-hmm. So she feels like her opinions are aren't valid. Yes, because they're not as informed as mine. And I will tell you that I feel the same way when I go and see a dance performance. It's not that I don't have an opinion, but I feel like it's not, I don't know enough about what I'm seeing to feel like whatever I say is going to add to your experience as a maker, you know? So can I I just speak from someone who works with other artists? Please. (laughs) Because my, so I work with Heather Gordon, the visual artist and uh, Heather had no experience with dance before we started working together, but we clicked on a lot of other levels and she came to rehearsal and was like, wow, you guys, whoa, you know? And so I've been her (laughs) like dance education uh, which is great. She's been my visual arts education, you know, in a lot of ways being able to like, but I think oftentimes what people that, that aren't in your sphere of art say it resonates more with I, me. I agree. Then, then just, you know, like I love, I really love what you say about my dance, Alyssa, you know, I yeah. really appreciate it because you're an incredible, um, you're incredible with feedback and same for you, Lightsey. But for the most part, uh, for the most part, when you speak to other dancers about your work, they just are speaking your language, mm-hmm. you know? And so then when you, when you can talk to someone outside of that sphere of knowledge and with, outside of the lingo and the, you know, the expectations that we all carry with us inside the dance field, mm-hmm. um, it can really be rejuvenating about the work. And sometimes I really need that. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. So I, yeah, I would rather hear whatever impressions you have in your lingo and from your experience, then, then oftentimes the people inside. But I do think it's it's helpful to throw a bone to the audience and how and guide them in the kind of feedback that they might offer. So, for example, if someone came to me and said, "What was one moment, or was there a moment that you're still thinking about?" Mm-hmm. or you know, I'm I'm I have questions about the beginning when this and this happened, what did you take away from that experience? So that you don't get just this bland kind of, it was good. You were really working hard up there. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, because that can be true, but it's not specific enough. And then the audience doesn't necessarily feel like they're giving you what you want, you know, which is, which is feedback that you can use to do this unpacking. Like it needs to be modeled. Right, yeah. it needs to be modeled to people who don't quite know how to do it. Perhaps it doesn't. It doesn't always have to be feedback either. Right, you know, it can be yeah. conversation. Like, yeah. uh, I've talked to Justin about her work, but I've also talked to other people about Justin's work, and that's a different conversation. But both. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different. Totally. <laughs> no, it was a good different conversation. But both, you know, further the further the larger work, right? Yeah. Yeah. I also think that there's this interesting piece there. Um, I mean, and this is something we thought about also with the Dida Book Club model about needing a little bit of time and yes. space away from the thing to process. Because like Tamara, what you were saying about finishing a performance and wanting to be grateful to audience for being there, but also like you just did a performance and you're exhausted um, and you probably produced it, so you're yeah, exhausted. Right. So I think that I think it's worth acknowledging that we don't need our artists to do even more, mm-hmm. like emotional labor for for audience. I mean, it's not to say that like audience is demanding that from us, but I don't think we need to put that on ourselves either. You know, we've just put a lot out there, mm-hmm. and we're tired, and it's run <laughs> whatever number in a uh, night in a row. So I think there's that piece of it of of as artists, we need a second to even be ready to hear feedback. And I feel like for audiences also, you need a second to sit with what you saw, you know, and maybe and to have that conversation or to have that time to process so that maybe you do feel more confident. Because after I see something, I don't know exactly how I felt about every moment. 
you know? Um, I don't know anything after. Right. I see yeah. I, I see know. something and I'm like, wow, that was a lot to take in. I feel yeah. kind of tired. I want to go home, you know, yes, like, exactly. so yeah, to me, I think there's something there worth acknowledging that like directly post-performance is not the ideal time for that mm-hmm. conversation to happen, at least for me. As well, audience not, and yeah. as artist, I've I think. I've gone to a lot of talkbacks. Yeah. Not many of them are right. great. I have yeah. to say, you know, this is something I think about. I've gotten into dance writing again a little bit. And I, <laughs> as a dance writer, I always think about modeling, being a person, having an experience. So I try to admit places where I don't really know or, you know, questions I had that don't need to adhere to some larger thesis, just me asking a question. Because I think audience members, a lot of audience members, need more models. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. You know, a person having an experience. Hey, I showed up. I was in a bad mood because, you know, somebody dinged my car outside. And so I had a hard time getting into it. Even that, I think, is useful for people to hear. Like, oh, okay, I can be a normal, you know, I can be my real self. I don't have to, like, empty myself out to be a, you know, perfect vessel. vessel. Right. Yes. Totally. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. How do we do that? Well, we'll talk about it in the car. <laughs> we'll talk, solve it. talk about it and let me know. But I have one more question about this. And that is, you know, Alyssa, you were talking about how challenging it can be to hear feedback post-performance. And I think that's really true, especially, well, at least in the theater community, it's very rare that we would ever remount something. So once you get feedback from a show, I mean, it's wonderful to have it and it might have an impact going forward. But that ship has sailed like that, uh-huh. that, that performance is done. So yeah. your feedback is appreciated, but okay, we'll try and learn and apply it to the next completely different show that we're going to do. So the feedback process that I'm interested in, at least in the theater world is moving that somehow into the rehearsal process, yes. but you can't accommodate that because you're trying to do all the other things. So it's really hard to make the space for that kind of feedback. But it seems like there are two opportunities, right? One is in process and one is post performance. Uh Do you all have that something formal that happens during the process? Not something formal. We did have an opportunity this year. We partnered with Duke Performances. Um, John Heigenbotham was in residence with them doing um, a series of performances. And as part of that, I don't know if it was a commission or part of that performance run, they were doing some community outreach. And so they connected with us and we set up with the ADF studio, a works in progress showing that a few of our Dida artists participated in. And what was cool about it was that John actually was the only person giving feedback, but it was an open showing. So what I thought was cool about it was that audience got to see not only works in progress and sort of get a sneak peek into things that were being developed, but also to see the critical conversation around like, here's some feedback I have for you about that. Here are questions I have. And so, and then an an opportunity to watch the artist respond in a way that was process oriented. Mm -hmm. Um, And to me, that was really exciting. Because I I do think that in process, the type of feedback you seek out is really important. And so like, as speaking from an artist standpoint, I would feel too precious to widely open up my work for feedback, because you don't know how helpful some things are going to be. And when you're in process, I think some of that can just distract from, from what you're trying to get at. But I do like to invite several different people that I think look at art differently. So maybe I invite a theater artist. I invite someone who is not an artist at all because I want their read on it. Um, I invite another dance artist who I think is is adept at giving feedback. So I think you have and and also I think you have to be specific about like what questions you have. You know, do I have structural questions? Great. I'm going to find someone who really does that well in their work and ask them for specifically that kind of feedback. Yeah. Maybe you can speak more to what you do, Justin. (laughs) I'm the worst to actually talk about this (laughs) because I don't ever do that. Yeah. I actually don't bring people in though. I, um, in this last process, actually the last two processes, I was hanging out with a dramaturg 
And so that was really helpful. And I think that's something that I'll start to bring into my process is like just another eye, not just another eye and someone who's not inside the process exactly, um, who's able to bring, and, and it is their work to come see it in a way that I appreciate. I think I appreciate a dramaturg's perspective yeah, and the way that they sort of float around the work um, differently than, than um, another, just a, a colleague. I'm not just a colleague. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think we could definitely use more, uh, more people looking at work and giving mm-hmm. feedback uh, in the course of the, the development of the work. It's just part of that, that richness we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier. You know, if, if no one sees your work until it, it premieres and then boom, it's up. And then three days later, it's gone that's a really short window for anyone else to have impact on the work or to even kind of participate in the work. I would like to see work having a kind of a longer lifespan where it develops, you know, it shows in this form develops, it shows in this other form Mm -hmm. where it it just kind of keeps going. I think we need a lot more of that here. It requires a lot of patience, I think to, to do that. And also a lot of a lot of resource right. <laughs> to do that um, because I think, and it's very challenging because I think that this community in theory is really excited about world premieres and original works and all of that. But the response to those in production is that they should be highly polished and completely finished. Right. And that's impossible when you're pr- premiering something for the first time. Right. So this longer arc that you're talking about where something is shown and then, everybody goes back and then it's shown again. And, you know, it, ideally it would establish a relationship with the audience and allow a deeper exchange over a course of time. But then we go back to this idea of, of the resource and also people having patience to, to go on that journey with artists. Yeah. Well, I'm having the experience now. um, This is the first time I'm remounting a work. Well, actually two works, uh, both from, 2015. So they're three years old and I'm, uh, my company is remounting these two works and already watching them. I have new ideas and things that I want to redevelop. And, mm-hmm. um, there was a couple of different audience members, people that attend the work that, that saw both of them that were like, yay, you're doing that one again. And I thought, Oh yeah, right. Of course you saw that, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not existing in a vacuum. And so that's exciting to think, Potentially, I'll be embarking on a similar experience of, of you know, seeing a bigger arc of the work um, and seeing how we change in relationship to it as a company, you know, doing it again, but then also how it's received and maybe the feedback that I get on it this time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, you know, again, it's resources, though. There's a there's a reason right. for me to be pulling it back out. Right. And there is some money involved. So I can. <laughs> yeah. 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 A lot has changed. In the last few years here in our community, in the dance community, and certainly in the growth of Durham. So the resources, the advocacy, the challenges, all of that have, have changed for the dancers. How is Dida changing to meet the needs of the community in 2018, 2019? We are kind of taking a little time to think um, in that we are not having a fall season this year. We will have what we are calling a 2018-19 season, but it will actually just occupy um, January to June, June or July. Yeah. Question so, mark. So it will be a, a spring season, as they say. And uh, in the fall, we're going to listen a lot. And incubate. Incubate. Yeah. yeah. Talk to people. So we, we don't, you know, we feel that, we are going to change as a model, but we haven't kind of put in place. This is how we're going to change yet. Mm-hmm. We're we're taking the time to make the changes. Yeah, because the diet is full. It's full on year round. Uh, when the season is happening, we're addressing the season mm-hmm. um, and all the all the work that goes into that. And then as soon as well before the season closes, we already start looking at the next season and programming the next one and and doing all the nuts and bolts of that work. So um, it's really never ending. We have to actually put on the brakes to, to address the, the deep changes. And it's also a beautiful time to reflect on four years of Dida, Mm -hmm. you know, and really see what we've been able to accomplish um, how we've been able to support the dance community and then, you know, 
what needs to change about that? How is it, how can we continue to be useful in the, in the same ways that we've been useful in the past? Yeah. When you mentioned talking to people in the fall, what are you going to be talking to them about? What are your questions? I think those problems that we talked about, you mm-hmm. know, funding, critical conversation, those are definitely um, some of the questions that we, we want to talk about. We, we also want to talk more about um, bringing all the different sections of the dance community together because there are pieces of the dance community that don't end up talking to other pieces of the dance community. Or there are audiences who go to one kind of dance, but you never see them in another kind of dance. So that's another one of the, the conversations that we want to have with, with people this fall. You know, I think a lot of it too is like, what are your needs? What are your needs and how do you see those uh, being addressed? What are the possibilities? Yeah. And I think we also have uh, two things. One is I think there are a lot of folks in the community now who weren't here four or five years ago and a lot of folks who were here five years ago who aren't here now. So yeah, I think that the taking the time to like listen and ask those questions feels really important about the dance community specifically Um, I do also already see conversations happening across artistic disciplines in Mm -hmm. Durham because I think that we are all having similar challenges around funding and patronage and resources. And um, I think another amazing thing that taking the fall off is going to allow us to do is connect folks in the dance community who feel excited about getting involved in these sort of like broader scope projects, or if they want to do more arts advocacy in the city of Durham, or, you know, if they want to connect with folks, I think, honestly, I think one of our strengths as Dida is that not only do we have access to these resources, but we know a lot of people. And I think it's much easier to rather than look at a sprawling resource packet, which although we have it, like, it's great. But also, how great is it to have someone say, hey, I have this person you should meet. I'm just going to shoot you both an email. Right. And now you can talk and it's not weird. You know? That's when, um, we, really, that's when we get to be really good. Yeah. We get to be connectors. Yeah. And yeah. I, think, I think that's the thing. I think for me, also as someone who didn't found Dida, who came on board, uh, yeah, after the second season – the things that I get the most excited about are our capacity to connect people in this community. And also I get really excited when the three of us, like we're idea people, like we get <laughs> jazzed about ideas and then we're like, Oh no, but we have this whole season. And so I'm excited for us also to have some space to think about what are, you know, what are the ideas that exist even like between the three of us in the same room and like, creating space for ourselves to have time to really commit to some of those ideas or think through some of those ideas. Um, Cause we so often have these great ideas that we just don't have the time right. to or focus on or the bandwidth. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, early on I, I talked about trying to do the most with the least and we're still devoted to that because mm-hmm. all of us have jobs and lives and we're not getting paid. So yeah. <laughs> by yeah. Dida. So, you know, it's not like Dida is going to, take in all of the problems of the dance community over the fall and then figure out how to solve all the problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think, I think a lot of it is probably going to be about trying to enable people to come up with models to solve problems too. Um, right. We were yeah. at a, um, Alyssa actually hosted a community gathering what, last week. Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed that the role that the three of us took on was kind of like, okay, what do you mean by that? And when should mm-hmm. that happen? And how should that happen? And why is this part important? And who's going to um, spearhead that one? So we have this experience in running a project with nothing, with no resources. Mm-hmm. And I think we can, you know, help other people. We can support them right. to, to go off. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Back to that support model. <laughs> <laughs> I think also the three of us know that we can't take on anymore. So it feels much easier to be like, and who else will do that, you know, (laughs) which feels important and like taking care of ourselves also. Given all of this and not knowing exactly what kind of responses you're going to get through the fall or what kind of ideas you're going to come up with together, but what would you like Dida to look like in 2024 at the 10 year anniversary? I, you know, I was thinking about this question because at first I was like, why 2024? It actually took me a minute to realize that was the 10 year. And then I was like, what? That's so far from now. 
Because Dida has always been just sort of like year to year, like mm-hmm. what, what do we need? What do we need to do? What's the next thing in front of us? And we've also always said that we would only exist as long as we were useful. Yeah. I would think that in ten years we'd be pretty different mm-hmm. because yeah, we want to change. Yeah. yeah, we want to change. We want to adapt. Right, and if you know the the uh, the part that we do that's curating. If in 10 years there are, you know, three independent venues that present seasons of independent work, I think that is that function of Dida and that wouldn't need to exist anymore. Right. And I could potentially see that happening. So I, I have to say that's, it really depends on what other actors in the scene do. Mm-hmm. We've, we don't have a commitment to legacy. We don't feel like we need to be here 10 years from now in this form in order to be, quote, successful. That We are not focused on successful. We are focused on useful. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> snaps. Snaps all around. <laughs> I feel good about that answer. Yeah, same, same. Same. Is there anything that you would like to talk about that we haven't covered? I mean, it, I think it wouldn't hurt to put a call out to everybody to say, you know, what are you not hearing here that you, you want to hear from us? you know, give us some, give us some of your ideas in terms of, you know, what the dance community needs, what the arts community needs. I mean, I think, you know, we really want to be, we want to be super clear that we're really open to this, you know, open to being useful. Um, And it would be great to keep the conversations going critical and otherwise, you know, because, because as you, you know, discussed earlier in terms of Durham changing so much, you know, we need a lot of voices. We need a lot of voices to talk about how we're going to adapt. You know, all of us. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you taking the time to have all three of you together is extra special. So thanks for all that you do. And yeah, to be continued. <laughs> Thank you. Friends, would you please help this podcast? Share this episode via social media. Or leave a review on iTunes, and you will help us grow. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, too, so jump on and follow along. There's more in the show notes and on our website, artistsoapbox.org. Thanks so much, and we're out.